you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 4, uh, we're going to be looking at one of the last three parts of this book, the last chapter in Philippians. The day is April 30th. The year is 1863. Most of the world's attention is on the United States' Civil War. But there's also a war that's raging down south in Mexico as the Mexicans are fighting against Napoleon's France. There, are, there is this uh, group of men, 65 men, who are part of the French Foreign Legion. And they are um, tasked with carrying supplies to their fellow comrades. And as they're on the move to carry these supplies, they are caught in the open. And the Mexican army pushes them back to this small little town called Cameron. And they're wedged in, cornered into this little inn in the middle of town. Now, the uh, captain of the French army, his name is Jean d'Anjou. Okay, and try saying that without having a blast. It's impossible, all right? So Jean d'Anjou and his men, he has 65 men, and they are surrounded by 2,000 Mexican soldiers. So severely outnumbered, there's no um, water, there's no food, um, they have no escape route, there's extreme heat, backs against the wall, but they stand their ground. And as the uneven battle rages and the inn is bursting into flames, Danjou is, is famous for yelling out. He says, the legion dies, it does not surrender. The legion dies, it does not surrender. And they continue to fight. And even after Danjou is killed by a sniper, his men courageously battle for 11 hours They take out, they kill 300 of the Mexican soldiers and wound 300 more. And they get all the way down to where there's only five men left. Where you'd think at that point in in battle it would be honorable to surrender. They fought well, they were brave, but they don't. And instead they charge ahead into the sea of almost 1,500 men and yell, Viva la France! All right? Do you like, is that, I've practiced that. Uh, The men are, three of the five men are shot down. Two of them are left. So you picture this scenario. There's two men, two French Legion soldiers, surrounded by 1,400 Mexican soldiers. And they stare the commander in the eye. And instead of surrendering... They demand safe passage home. All of their men, all the wounded, all of even their, ca- their captain to be able to take him home, all their weapons and their French flag. They say, you give us safe passage and taking home all of these things. And the Mexican commander just like looks at them in disbelief. And what he says and what he's famous for saying, he says, what can I do with such men? No, these are not men. They are devils. And what he does is he grants their request. So these two men, two men, heads held high, walk out of there unscathed without surrendering. And to this day, the Mexican army, when they pass by this famous monument um, at Cameron, they they, they present arms as a sign of respect for the courage and the perseverance that these French Legion troopers showed that day. And in fact, and in France and among the uh, foreign French Legion, April 30th is now known as Cameron Day. And every year they celebrate this. The word Cameron is actually found on the Legion flag. And then 
uh, Jean d'Anjou, his, uh, he had a, a wooden prosthetic hand. He had lost his real hand in battle. And this hand every uh, year is, is brought out to kind of commemorate and celebrate he and his brave soldiers and what they had done to honor them. The Apostle Paul, <clears throat> he gives us a similar charge to wrap up this book of Philippians. And what he says to the Philippian church is he says, stand firm Stand your ground, stand firm in the Lord. And we're going to look at kind of a three-part mini-series here to wrap up our, our, our book of Philippians, our study of Philippians, and, and we're going to call this unmovable. That, that God has called us, that Paul is charging us here in chapter 4 in three different areas to be unmovable, to stand our ground in the Lord. So let's look at four, four different things you want to look at. If, you, if, you, if you're new here, we do have a, an outline you can follow along in your uh, bulletin. If you don't have them, they're in the back. Uh, first part is don't be defeated, stand your ground. Don't be defeated, stand your ground. Paul opens up the last chapter by saying this. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. We've seen all through this book his affection for them how much he cares for them personally, has a relationship with them. And he says, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Now this Greek uh, phrase, it means, stand firm, it means to hold one's ground as a soldier in the heat of battle. So very much like the French Legion, he has this battle image in his mind, and he says, stand your ground, don't move, don't surrender. And much like Danjou's famous words, he's basically saying Christians die, they don't surrender. Christians die, they don't surrender. We lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the other, but we do not surrender, we don't give in. And it's interesting here, he's using battle language, but he's not calling the believers to march forward. You notice that? He's not saying, go get them. He says, stand your ground. Stay where you are. And and he uses very similar language throughout the epistles. You think about the famous passage in Ephesians 6. It talks about the armor of God. So we're getting all jacked up. Like, we get all this armor. Let's get into battle. Like, let's go take some ground. But watch what Paul says. Four times he uses the word stand. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth. And he goes on to talk about the different pieces of armor. Paul's call is to stand your ground. So why is Paul, why is Paul's admonition to stand your ground and not go on the offensive? I think the, the, the answer is relatively simple because there's no more ground to take there's no more ground to take on the cross jesus completely decisively victoriously won the battle against sin and death and satan and this world and that's the language that he uses in john 16 he predicts what's going to happen he goes in this world you're going to have trouble is coming. But take heart. And here's why you take heart. He goes, I have overcome the world. It's a done deal. And then in Colossians, same, same language. In this way, he, Jesus, disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So we are simply called to hold the ground that Jesus has already won. 
So the question is, well, what does this look like to hold this ground? What does that mean for us? Um, well, if, if our battle is not against, remember Paul said, our battle is not against flesh and blood. We're not fighting against people. The battle is against rulers. It's a spiritual battle of the principalities, the forces of this world. It's a spiritual battle. And really this battle comes down to two things. It's truth versus lies. That's the battle that you and I are waging today. See, if Jesus won, already won the battle, all that's left for the enemy to do is lie to us and tell us that he didn't win the battle. That's it. That's all that's left. And for, for, for the lie to be that our sin still dominates us, that, that we have to, that we, we cannot overcome it. The, the lie that, that sin can still win, that we have something to be afraid of, that we have something to be ashamed of. And that's why the armor of God, and you think about like the belt of truth, that's what, that's what we're, we're, we're to dawn, is the belt of truth, the claim, the truth of the victory that Christ has already won. Take up the shield of faith. It's claiming, believing what Jesus already did for us. It's simply believing God's truth over Satan's lies. The battle's won. We are loved, we are accepted, and in him, we are victorious. And just like Danjou's wooden hand serves as a memorial every year, Jesus' wooden cross serves as a reminder to us that likewise our commander laid his life down so that we might have victory. So let's stand on the ground <clears throat> for which Jesus won. Second thing, don't be divisive, stand together. <clears throat> don't be divisive, stand together. So he's going to give us some areas in, in which we can stand our ground. So verse 2, now before I go there... You all right now are reading, maybe you're reading in, on your Android or, or iPhone. Um, maybe you're reading on a personal hard copy. I heard they still make the ones with paper. Um, <clears throat> but you all have your own copy. This was not the case when, when this letter was being presented to the Philippians originally, back in first century AD. They had a scroll, and they would have read this scroll out loud to the people. So they would have been listening to this message together. Okay, so they're getting excited, they're getting pumped up, stand your ground, don't move, yeah, we're going to do it. And then he reads verse 2, and he goes, I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Sintichi to be of the same mind in the Lord. There's a couple of women, these are both females, they are fighting with each other. And you imagine that when he gets to this verse, this like awkward hush just kind of comes over the crowd, right? And Yodia and Sintichi are just like staring. If I'm not looking at them, they're not looking at me, right? Their faces are just on fire and they are embarrassed. They're being called out by name in this letter for not getting along. And I think this is one of the main reasons that Paul continues to bring up unity in this book. He time and time again has talked about being of the same mind, being on the same page, and don't grumble and complain, don't fight against each other. Because I think there was a problem of unity in the church and it started with these two. Now, we don't know much about these ladies. We don't know why they're fighting. We don't know what the problem is. We do see a couple of clues in verse 3. Um, Help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers who, whose names are in the book of life. So a couple of things we can infer. Their names are in the book of life. They are believers. He's talking to believers within the church. And, and number two, he says, they contended at my side for the cause of the gospel. These weren't just some fringers that just came into church. These are people who fought for the gospel with Paul. We're most likely talking about leaders from within this church. 
Leaders that would have been known well enough to have been brought up by name. So Paul calls these two ladies out, and he says, you need to get on the same page. Because Paul knows full well the damage that can be caused by disunity. Before I, uh, before God changed courses on me um, for the first time, uh, I, I was training with New Tribes Mission. And New Tribes Mission is a mission, it's an amazing ministry that takes the gospel to places in the world where the lang- their language, their heart language, has never heard the name of Jesus, has never heard the gospel in their native tongue. And today, and, and it blows your mind to think, there are over 2,000 languages on planet Earth in 2016 who have still never heard the gospel in their heart and their native tongue. And it's a serious task. I mean, what's more important than finishing what Jesus gave us to do to take the gospel to all nations, to make disciples of all nations? But you want to know the number one reason why missionaries leave the field? It is not finances. It's not because they don't have enough money to go, that people aren't supporting them and sending them. It's not the tribal people who are fighting against them and kicking them out or refusing to believe. We can't blame it on Pokemon Go even though we'd probably love to. Uh, The number one reason that missionaries leave the field is conflict with coworkers. Think about that. This is supposed to be the spiritual elite, right? The cream of the crop. These are missionaries. They were too good to stay in church. They had to go somewhere else. And they're taking the gospel somewhere it's never been before. People are dying and go to hell if they don't hear this message. And the gospel is being blocked because they can't get along with each other? But this is Satan's tactic. This is the pride of the flesh. It's disunity. I mean, one of the biggest things that I think is impeding the church from making its progress of what God's called it to do is denominations. Like, if we could all just get on the same page in Soldatna and fight for the same Jesus together, I don't think this city would be able to handle it. But there's church splits, and there's arguments, and there's gossip, and there's backbiting, and there's all of these things going on from within the church. And nothing brings a church to its knees faster than disunity. It's not a lack of money. It's not suffering and persecution. We've already talked in this book that the gospel is going out the fastest in the places where the persecution is the greatest in this world. It's not leaders making poor moral decisions. All of those things, if there is unity there, can actually fan the flame. The biggest problem is disunity. And that's why Paul's aim here in these first couple of verses is to call them to unity. As he knows, it's critical in this war that we're engaging in, in this battle of truth versus lies. Unity can be the difference between victory and defeat, between life and between death. And Jesus knew that. And that's why Jesus, when he was in the garden, right before he was about to be crucified, what was on his mind, and there's this beautiful prayer. I don't know if there's a greater passage in all of the Bible than John 17. It's Jesus' prayer to his father in the garden. And he's got sweat. He's got drops of blood coming down his face. And this is what he prays for his disciples and for you and for me. He's in the garden and he says, I have given them, Jesus talking to God, I've given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and I've loved them even as you have loved me. How does the world know 
that Jesus was sent? How does the world know that God loves it? It's by us being one. Because without unity, the church cannot be what it's intended to be. It cannot do what it's intended to do. We can't do this job if we're not doing it together. But when we do move as one, the gates of hell cannot prevail against us. And we become unmovable. We become unmovable. And just a side note, he says here, uh, uh, be of the same mind in the Lord. I don't believe unity is possible without, if, if both parties, if both individuals are not walking with the Lord. Unity is only possible in Jesus. We can pretend, we can make nice. Okay, the world has this false unity about it. It can, it can look like that. But true oneness is only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit as he unites us in Jesus. We're one in him. And then Paul says something interesting. He goes, yes, I ask you, my true companion, help these women. Now, who is he talking to here? Who is, he says, my true companion. Um, is, he, who, is he referencing like a, one individual? Is he referencing a specific individual? If so, why doesn't he call that person out by name? Well, there's a lot of different uh, understandings, uh, different interpretations of this, but a lot of commentators agree this word companion, so he says my true companion, this word companion is the Greek word syzygis, okay, it just rolls off the tongue. Uh, if any of you guys are having babies and you want to name them and make them angry at you for the rest of their lives, go with syzygis. Uh, it means yoke fellow or a person who pulls well in a harness for two, so this word companion that I use is it's somebody that does a good job at coming alongside somebody else. And a lot of commentators believe that he's actually using a proper name here. That the person, he says, that I ask you, my true syzygis, he's saying my true yoke fellow, he goes, you, you are good at bearing one another's burdens, at coming alongside other people, be true to your name. Be a true yoke fellow. And we've seen this in other passages, uh, Barnabas. Barnabas means son of encouragement. And when Barnabas, it's interesting, you read in Acts, he is super encouraging. It says when Barnabas arrived, he encouraged all the believers to remain true to the Lord. He's being a true Barnabas, a true son of encouragement. My name, mean, Justin, it means the just or the right. So that works out great. I'm always correct. Like, I'm just true Justin. That's not true. Get, the, get out of the lightning bolts path. Um, but there's this call that oftentimes in our lives to maintain unity, we need a mediator. And it's a biblical concept that if we can't figure it out between me and you, let's bring someone else in. Let's get an outside perspective. We needed a mediator with Jesus. That's what he did. He's our mediator between a holy God and a sinful man. The only way we could get on the same page is Jesus coming and dying for us and shedding his blood for us in our place. And there are times uh, when we need to be mediators as well. I've served as mediator between my brother and sister. Um, this is years ago. Um, and my, you know, it's interesting when you hear the different parties like, it's incredible that there's even a fight at all, because my sister is going, man, I was just super understanding and kind and calm and rational and reasonable with Jeremy, and then the whole time he was like, she's like, and then I go to talk to Jeremy, and he's like, yeah, I don't know, I was just completely calm and rational and kind to her, and but she was like, and it was just like, man, if both of you guys were so calm and rational and reasonable, I don't know where the beef was, right? And you need someone who can come in and show both sides some of the blinders. 
and to help see from the other person's perspective to come in and help mediate. But ultimately, unity can only be possible in the Lord with Jesus. So how do we maintain this kind of unity? This is the last two things that he wants to show to us this morning. Number three, don't be discouraged. Stand in the joy of the Lord. The French Legion would have never stood their ground if they'd have looked at their circumstances, if they would have reasoned there's 65 against 2,000. That math doesn't work in our favor. But they dug down deep, and there was a deeper conviction, something inside of them that kept them going, and that's what Paul calls the believers here in Philippi too. He says in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, they're reading it out loud, so you can kind of imagine somebody leaning in over going, did he mean always, always? Like, because there's some times where I'm not so joyful. I know what you mean. And right in the midst of that, he anticipates that, so what does he do? He goes, I will say it again. Rejoice right? I know some of you doubt me that always means always, but rejoice always. I will say it again, rejoice. And at first, this might seem like a weird command. Like, how do you command someone to be joyful? How is that something that you can kind of just call someone to do on the spot? And I mean, there's things about there's lots of times in our lives when we're not joyful, and we're sicker than a dog, and the snot's flowing down our faces, and we're barfing, and the, sorry, we're the whole thing. And you imagine like Paul standing over you like a drill sergeant. I said, rejoice, boy. You know, like, I don't know. <laughs> Thank you, you know, and you're, and like, how do we? How are there are circumstances in our lives when I don't feel the joy of the Lord circulating through my veins? How do we do this? Well, look, in the next minute, 80 babies will be aborted. In the next 60 seconds, before I finish this illustration, 80 babies. I don't rejoice in that. God doesn't rejoice in that. It breaks his heart. There's pain, and there's suffering, and there's evil in this world. There are a lot of things that we're not called to rejoice in. Even our, even our successes. Like if we rejoice in our successes, what does that imply? When the success dissipates, so does our joy. We're not called to rejoice in our circumstances, and that's not what Paul says here. And there's a very key prepositional phrase that he uses here. What Paul says is rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. If we are going to always be rejoicing, it must be directly linked to who God is. And Paul is saying in every situation, the green pastures and the darkest valleys, find your joy in God. If you want to be truly unmovable, if you truly want to stand your ground in all of life's situations, it's only going to happen if we find our joy in Him. Did you think about, I mean, what does this look like? What does this look like for us? I mean, what do we, how do we rejoice in the Lord? Well, we rejoice in, the, in who he is. So we know, for example, that God is sovereign, right? That means he's in control. That means he's in charge. That there's no one more powerful than him. That no one can come in and thwart God's plan. That can alter what he's aiming to do in this world and in our lives. And the other really cool thing related to that is God's plan for us, his unchanging, unmovable plan for us is for our good. That, 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 he is, that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. And the thing that he started in you, he's going to finish it and no one can prevent that. And so that means that there is no tear that's wasted. There's no pain that's wasted in our lives. God's not surprised. He's not thrown off. 
And Jesus saved me from sin and death. He made me his child. And even if I die, and when I die, I get to go be with daddy in a mansion forever. There's joy there. There's joy there. So in the midst of sickness, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, with hot tears rolling down our cheeks. I mean, Jesus in the garden, he goes, Father, take this cup from me. He wasn't rejoicing in the coming crucifixion. He goes, I don't want this. Take this away. But not my will, but yours be done. And we say, in the midst of the pain, I rejoice because you're in control, because you're good, because you love me, because you're using this for my good and for your glory, and you're never going to let me go. You're never going to let me go. And see, when we have this sort of perspective, the whole disunity thing sort of crumbles away, doesn't it? If we have the right perspective of God and the right perspective of what he's doing, then the grumbling and the discontent in our lives, it's removed. Because if, if we're looking for happiness... Uh, the word happiness, it means happenstance. That's kind of the root of it. And so it's saying that happiness is based on your happenstance, on your circumstances. So in other words, um, if I'm tying my joy to my happenstance, then when people are treating me wrong, when people are disagreeing with me, when people are hurting me, when people are arguing with me, because my circumstances are bad, then my joy is gone. But if my joy is connected to who God is, and when someone wrongs me, I simply say, There's not, this is not outside of God's sovereignty, and this is not outside of God's goodness. He's in control. He's using the situation to use me and to grow me. And my joy is untouchable. My feet are unmovable. Stand your ground. And the last thing. It says, don't be defensive. Stand for your brother. Stand for your brother. Again, if the French legionnaires were just looking out for themselves and not for their fellow Frenchmen, there's no way that they would have persevered in that battle. There's no way they would have stood their ground. And this is what Paul says. He goes, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Your gentleness. Now, what, is that, what does that word mean? Uh, in the Greek, it meant uh, to yield to others, to be kind or to be reasonable. So he kind of looks at the positive sense of how are we to be in unity. It's the way we treat each other. It's being kind. It's being reasonable toward each other. And I love this kind of fuller definition of, of what that reasonableness looked like. It meant to not be carried away way with an obsession about unimportant matters to the point of fighting over non-essentials. In other words, Paul's saying major on the majors, okay? Don't fight over the small stuff. Like if there's someone in your church that's preaching heresy, if there's a wolf in sheep's clothing, get them out of there, okay? Stand for the gospel. But he says don't fight over the color of the carpet. And don't fight over how loud the drums are being played. We had the full band up here. It's been a while. It was awesome. I couldn't hardly find a music stand. Um, but, but, you know, he says, don't let those little things turn into this. Okay? Don't, he says, don't fight, don't brawl over the small, over the non-essentials. Be kind and be reasonable. I, I saw this picture. This is funny. It's, uh, there's old Mount Calvary Baptist to the left. And then to the right is New Mount Calvary Baptist Church. And apparently they had had some kind of squabble over something. I thought it was interesting that both of their services started at the exact same time. So you can't go to both. you got to choose. Um, but these churches, we will split, we will splinter, we will divide over the smallest things in the way we treat each other. 
over things that just don't need to be fought over. And you know what I've found? It's never about what it's about. Like, like it's not really about the color of the carpet, is it? It's about being right. It's about winning. It's about getting your way. It's about, it's about, it's, it's, it's a pride thing. And we just use those things to fight over And then what he says here, he goes, let your gentleness be evident to all. And this is the convicting part. This is the hard part. Not just be gentle to your posse. Not just to your group. But yes, be gentle to him. Be gentle to her. That person that came into your mind when I said this. Our gentleness is to be to all. And and he says to be gentle to all because the Lord is near. The fact that Jesus could return at any moment. Are we living in light of that? Because if we are, it's going to tend, it's going to drive us to see what matters most in relationships. The ship is sinking and we're fighting over that? There was this, again, to go back to New Tribes, there was this poster in the school and there was these two missionaries and they were literally splitting a hair. And they were both bent over this hair, splitting it. And in the background there was like flames and people were like dying and going to hell, which is kind of graphic. But the point was, was made. We're sitting here fighting over these little theological skirmishes when we're missing the big picture. Let's be on the same team and, and save as many people as possible before the Lord comes back. We don't have time to fight. We've got a job to do. And I want to land four areas, that, that four ways to stand our ground together. How do we kind of put, put feet to this? How do we live this out this week? Four things. First one is to engage. We don't build unity in a vacuum. Uh, Ron had touched on this a little bit in, this morning. We, we need to we need to spend significant time with each other. A five-minute catch-up after the service is nice, and there's a place for that. But that in itself is not a life-sustaining, a unity, a affection-building relationship. Let's live together. Let's cry together. Let's bleed together. Let's laugh together. Are you putting yourself in relationship with other believers to move toward this unity together, to fight for the defense of the gospel together? Number two, pray. If the Holy Spirit's not uniting us, then we're not united. It's, It's his work. And let's pray for each other, It's a lot harder to be a hater when you're praying for that person, but even more powerfully, pray with each other, to see each other on our knees together, hand in hand together. It's a beautiful thing. Third, reconcile. It's very interesting. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, so if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Stop right where you are. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. What he's saying is, even when we put this into like today language, like you're coming to church, you're even here and you're halfway through the second song, and you realize the Lord brings to your attention that there's someone you have not reconciled with yet. Jesus is saying, if this isn't right, this can't be right. That we can't worship him if we're in disunity with a brother or sister. And I'd encourage you, if they're in here, grab them by the arm. Well, gently call them. And, and bring them into the back and say, hey. And for some of us, this means admitting that we're wrong. It's some of it's confessing if it's our bad. Or maybe it means forgiving if it's their bad. But reconcile with one another. We can't worship God if if we're not on the same page. And then fourth, encourage. And this has always been a convicting verse for me. Ephesians 4, 29. Don't use foul or abusive language. Now there we could stop there and I'd be like, okay, so just don't like swear, don't say hard things. But he goes on. Let everything you say be good and helpful. Everything. 
so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. In other words, if your words, if our words, if my words aren't building somebody up, if they're not helpful, then they don't need to be said. You know, you, you know the, the, always, it's always helped me to think of the three. You know, is, is it kind? Is it true? Is it necessary? And, and really to think through all three of those before we go to say something. Be slow to speak. Be quick to listen. And this is the call from chapter 3. We've got to speak the, the gospel to each other. We've got to speak. We've got to be in the word together, speaking truth in love to one another. We need to let iron sharpen iron with truth, truth and love. So we're in a battle. We're in a battle. And just like the French Legion, at times it can seem like we're outnumbered. It can, it can seem like we're, out, we're surrounded. But the call, the battle is over truth versus lies. So the question before us today is, will we believe the lies of the enemy, or will we stand our ground in the truth of the word of God and who he is and the victory that he's won for us in Jesus? And maybe that's where you're struggling today. Maybe, maybe Satan's got you in a corner and saying, man, that abusive father in your life, like there's never going to be a change in his heart. There's never going to be reconciliation possible. Maybe there's, a, maybe there's a calloused, a distant spouse. Maybe there's a gulf between the two of you today. And you know, that, that could never be spanned. That could never change. Maybe it's the lie that what you've done, you've sinned, you messed up too much, that God can't use me in ministry anymore, that God, that, God, that I just kind of, I'm too dirty, I just need to be set aside in the corner. I, God doesn't love me, he doesn't care. I don't, I don't know what the lie is that the enemy is pounding on your door with today. But stand your ground. Jesus has won. Death and sin are defeated. I'm forgiven. I'm accepted. I have victory in Jesus. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would be a people who would not surrender, but that we would be unmovable. Christians die, they don't surrender. Christians live, they don't surrender. And God, I ask that for each of us today, that we would choose joy in Jesus. Joy in Jesus, not in our circumstances. And God, as I look amongst our family here today, I see people that I know, that I love, that are hurting, that have questions, that are in many different places. And God, we don't, you didn't call us to rejoice in our circumstances, but to rejoice in our God who is in control of our circumstances. So God, I just simply pray that we would believe truth, that we'd be a people who were brought in unity, that we would speak the truth to one another, that we would reconcile with each other. If, if there's someone that we've got to reconcile today, that we wouldn't let another sunset on that, that we would take steps toward that unity so that we can move forward. We can stand our ground and preach the gospel here and to the ends of the earth. So God, make us one as you and your son are one. May we choose joy in Jesus. May we rejoice always because of who he is and because of what he's done. In his beautiful name we pray. Amen.